Okay, friends, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We are at the very heart of Mark's gospel, Mark 10. And I wonder if you've noticed the redundancy of of Mark, especially in chapter 10. Before us is the third time we've heard Jesus predict his death and the details that will attend his death to his disciples. It is the third time we've heard the disciples clamor for preeminence, prestige, and position. And it is now when we finally arrive at that verse, Mark 10.45, that I, I told you about when we first started this gospel. The purpose statement of Mark in the words of Jesus, of why he came. And so, I think this kind of repetition is important because the disciples didn't learn it in the first time, the second time, or the third time. And neither will we in an ultimate sense because discipleship, as we'll see today, is always imperfect. So as we open up this passage, let its familiarity and the resonance that it has in your mind with the things that we've heard that are so similar to it in Mark just reinforce these important lessons. Mark 10, verse 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was leading the way. And they were amazed. The disciples were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's perfect, inspired, holy word. There are pastors with fiefdoms. The average church in the United States has 75 people in it. But there are pastors of large churches and small who love the thrill of getting up and talking in front of people, of making decisions, 
telling people what to do. But that kind of power-hungry spiritual leader isn't consigned just to pastors or deacons or something like that. There's parishioners who love the politics of the church. Big churches or little churches, they love to have the church be their chessboard where they get to move the pieces around. It's a place for them to be in charge, a place to get their way, a place to be influential and important. Maybe high school didn't go well for them. I don't know. But if churches, both big and small, can be fiefdoms and places of power and intrigue and politics. They attract the kind of leaders that, like a moth to flame, love to be important, in charge, love to be in control, love to receive kudos and congratulations and to get more clicks on YouTube. Smash that like button and subscribe. It's been almost normal for so many years, decades even, for churches to borrow concepts and strategies from worldly leaders how to make your church sparkle like Disneyland. How to, the old school, win friends, win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie's famous book. People still read it. You know, it has six ways in it to get people to like you. When I was preparing for this sermon, looking at like the popular business books, it actually crossed my mind. Maybe I need to read that. Never read it. I'm going to avoid it. The only business book I ever read was called Who Moved My Cheese? It was in the 90s. Christians were passing it around. It had something to do with contentment, I think. If I remember, it was a parable of sorts about rats in a maze and stuff like that. It had very little impact on me. But that kind of jockeying for position and quest for self-importance and affirmation is something that every person with ambition understands. And it's present not only in imperfect churches, which is all churches, but it was present in Jesus' little flock. Even in the little group of followers that Jesus had in His earthly ministry, even in that group, there were those who were most concerned about their own elevation, who prioritized self over others, including their master and teacher. Their concern was themselves, not Jesus. Their concern was their future stability and success. And Jesus was a means to that. And that's what we've seen as Mark tries to define and describe discipleship to us. And it started off, I think, so simple and clear Disciples follow Jesus. They leave behind their former manner of life and they just walk after Him and they follow His teaching and they they learn His way and they observe His power and they see that He is all that He claims to be and that He is the the fulfillment of God's promise to His people in, in Israel, that He is this promised Messiah. And as Mark continued his journey with, with Peter as his guide, Jesus becomes more than just this political leader, more than just someone who's going to turn the page in Jewish history, but someone who is going to reconfigure the entire cosmos. 
The whole universe is going to be flipped by this man. And their expectations for Jesus as king and Jesus as leader and, and, and these disciples to be his generals and henchmen and, and ambassadors was in some ways too small of an expectation of what Jesus was actually going to do. And it's here in this section in in Mark chapter 10. A section that's very difficult to extract from the whole. I, I find myself wanting to drag you through all of Mark and connect all the dots to blind Bartimaeus that follows the, the closeness of the triumphal entry in chapter 11. I mean, we're going straight into Passion Week here in, in the weeks that, that follow, tying it into all, all the other predictions that Jesus has made about His death, all the other clamoring for greatness. But I want to, as well as I can, focus on this section and help it to fill out our understanding of discipleship as He continues to define and describe it, but also combat this gnawing sense of self-importance that every one of us, if we're being honest, has tasted. Because Jesus is the only cure for ambition. Jesus is the only one who can reorient your desires as a disciple, not to put yourself and your preferences first, but to put Jesus first, to follow Him and Walk with Him and reorient your life around Him as He reorients the entire world around His glory and leads His own to God. Uh, We'll look at this in in really just two simple parts. Jesus' first, His third really, description of His death in verses 32 to 34. And in that we see the centrality of of sacrifice and service. And then in James and John's audacious request in verses 35 to 42, we see a further underlining of those same truths. Sacrifice and service. Sacrifice and service. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let's look at this first paragraph. Embedded in Mark's travel log is the language of discipleship. Look what I mean in verse 32. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem. I mean, that, that's just some mere geographical notes in, in one way. We've seen the geographical movement of Jesus and his disciples all through the northern part of Israel, and now they're headed south along the, the path from uh, Galilee and the, and the lake down to the chief city, the capital city of Jerusalem. And when you go down on the map in Jerusalem, you always go up. Where I'm from in a place called Albuquerque, New Mexico, neither New nor Mexico. You, 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 you draw your maps wrong. It's just part of the Albuquerque public school system. On one side of Albuquerque, on the east, is a bunch of mountains, 10,000 feet elevation almost. And Albuquerque is a mile high, so it's a big mountain just on one side. And whenever you draw a map in Albuquerque, people used to draw maps before you had a phone that would tell you where to go and track your movements and connect you to the government. But you would always draw your mountains at the top of the page. East was, was up in a map of Albuquerque. Similarly, Jerusalem is up, even though they're traveling north to south, going from Jericho to Jerusalem. It isn't a very far distance. It's 20 miles approximately. But it's an increase in 3,500 feet of altitude. And they didn't have 5.8 cylinder engines to get them there. They used these feats. El País. And so when they went up, they literally climbed up the the path. And it was a path that would take a solid day to get up there. A good hike. For a chubby guy like Peter, it would have been challenging. I've always pictured him chubby. I don't know if it's true. 
I know, Mediterranean diet, stop. But as they're on their way up to Jerusalem, that word up isn't just a, a sign of increasing altitude in a familiar and treacherous pass, one that couldn't be safely navigated at night or shouldn't have been. It needed to be done during the day, and it would take a large part of the day to do that. You see a language of discipleship employed by Mark intentionally, not just describing the road they're on, but describing the the followership that's been described throughout Mark, now ingrained in his language. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. I think that there's more to it than just Jesus is walking in front of his disciples on an incline. The early church saw this in this language and in their prayers and hymns and sermons spoke of Jesus leading the way, talked about going up to Calvary. And as Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah that said he would have his face set like flint, Isaiah 50, verse 7. It's these kind of moments that in Peter's reminiscence, he knew that his Lord knew where he was going and led with this intentional immovable focus on his divine mission. They're headed to Jerusalem. This is a controversial decision because the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees have so much influence there. It's a dangerous place for Jesus to go. The persecution that the disciples know awaits them and has been promised by Jesus twice now is inevitable if they go to Jerusalem. But Jesus leads the way. And the disciples are shown to be responding with a mixture of astonishment and fear. That's the two words used in verse 32. And there was probably more than just the twelve, but the twelve will be spoken to directly here. But all of Jesus' followers, whether there was a, a hundred with him at this point or or somewhere between 12 and 100. We don't know. The language is, is not perfectly clarifying there, but there seems to be a group with Jesus, and then the 12 closest to Jesus, and then the inner circle will be featured for the first time in Mark in verse 35 uh, as the brothers ask Jesus for uh, whatever it is that they want. And as they move towards Jerusalem... The emotion of the disciples is a mixture of amazement, astonishment, and fear. Because the audacity of Jesus to go to the place of certain conflict, a place where Jesus has said two times that he will be arrested, persecuted, killed, But he has this dogged determination to go there as if fulfilling his destiny. And even in this opening sentence, the disciples are depicted as following Jesus towards the cross. And their discipleship is a mixture of astonishment and fear. All discipleship is imperfect, but they're following. Remember, Peter had just said, behold, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus promised recompense that was a hundredfold in verses 28 through 31. See, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus promises and assures Peter that there will be a reward in this present age and the age to come. We looked at that paragraph last week. But it's this dogged determination of the the Lord to go where He has told them He will be killed. And they, with astonishment and fear, continue to follow. They don't understand it all. 
they're still dull of, of hearing, though they've been through miraculous illumination in so many ways in, in the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. They've started to understand that Jesus is, is the Messiah, that He is the chosen one of God, but no one in this book yet has equated Him with God. That will come. But in Mark's account, it won't come until the foot of the cross and it will be on the mouth of a Roman soldier. And so the disciples are following Jesus. Jesus is leading the way, His face like flint towards Jerusalem, imperfectly following after their Lord as He determinedly moves towards His destiny in humility and suffering intertwined. And then Jesus takes the twelve along the way, apparently, end of verse 32, and begins to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's that divine title we've looked at in the past, from the Psalms, from the book of Daniel, a title equated with deity, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the third, the fourth, if you count his brief words after transfiguration, but traditionally this is seen as the third and final passion prediction on the mouth of Jesus. The first one, come over with me to 831, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. I think it's worth it to compare these three. 831 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, same title, must suffer, same end, many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This is when Peter decided to rebuke the Lord. So here it's the Son of Man suffering many things, rejected by elders, chief priests and scribes, killed and three days rise again. That's the prediction, the first one. Go to 9, chapter 9, verse 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, and here's the second passion prediction, the Son of Man is going to be delivered and betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask Him. The correlation is the Son of Man, both in the first prediction the second prediction. The second one adds a note because it says He's going to be delivered, or you could translate that as betrayed, into the hands of men. Those culpable for His betrayal are not listed in the second passion, whereas in chapter 8 He said the elders, chief priests, and scribes will be responsible. And then in perfect continuity He says they will kill Him and after three days He will rise again, just as He did in the first account. And so you're getting the, the, the kind of bare realities of this being reinforced to the disciples. And then we get to our passage in, in, in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, and it says... The most. This is the fullest uh, prediction. This is the fullest teaching that Jesus provides his disciples in advance about what is going to happen to him, and therefore, by association, what will happen to them if they continue to follow him. Jesus has made it perfectly clear. And in verse 33, he says, The Son of Man will be betrayed. Just as he said in chapter 9. Using the same title, he said in chapter 8, three times, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. An assertion of his deity for Bible students, which the disciples will come to understand that to be of great significance after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
The betrayal of Jesus is a prediction that he made and that's fulfilled in chapter 14, verse 41. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In chapter 10, verse 33, it lists the same parties that will be culpable for the betrayal and death of the Son of Man as the chief priests. Their involvement is in chapter 14, verse 53. It says, And Jesus was led to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. So the chief priests, the scribes, they all are involved in condemning Jesus to death. That's chapter 14, verse 64. You've heard his blasphemy, they say. The high priest tears his garments. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death and began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. A very vivid detail that's found in fulfillment in chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, Gentile. Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 10, not only will he be handed over because of the chief priest scribes and he'll be condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles, but he says, who will mock him. That's in chapter 15, verse 29. We'll get to that soon. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Jesus even predicts that he will be spit on. Kind of the ultimate offense that happens two times in Mark's account. Chapter 14, verse 65. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him. It happens repeatedly, I'm sure, but in Mark's account, it's chapter 15, verse 19, when it says, Hail, King of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And then Jesus tells his disciples, not only will he be mocked and spit on, but he'll be flogged. And that's verse 15 of chapter 15. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus says he'll be mocked, he'll be spit on, he'll be flogged, and they will kill him. Verse 37 of chapter 15. Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. And then Jesus, as he said in 831 and 931, here now in chapter 10 in this third prediction, he says three days later he will rise again. And Mark gives us that account in chapter 16 with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome going to the tomb, saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? And an angel says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Jesus, with prophetic certainty, lays out what will happen to him. And when you read about this third passion prediction in more scholastic commentaries. They use Latin. Vaticinia ex eventu. Or they call it retro-rejections. In other words, they say Jesus couldn't have possibly known all of that. And so Mark 
is writing it back into Christian history. Retro-rejections. Or retrojections, something like that. One mark of scholarship is just making up vocabulary words. One author countering that, I think this is worth reading to you. It's a, just a few sentences. Answering kind of those who would say, Mark must have read this back into the story because there's so much clarity and certainty. He said, it's a curiosity that scholars who can predict with considerable accuracy what will happen if they publish certain views, for example, are prone to deny that Jesus could have foreseen his impending fate and to ascribe the three passion predictions to later editorial hands. It is surely fantastic to imagine that the early church, which was careful to distinguish its own teaching from that of Jesus on lesser matters, would consider ascribing such an audacious claim to Jesus without historical precedent. Indeed, given the opposition to Jesus, we should be surprised that if he had no in, in, uh, intimation of his impending death, the Apostle Paul had definite intimations of his own death, Acts 20, and similar examples in more recent history are not unknown. What went on in a Roman prison was no secret to anyone living in the Roman Empire. Jesus knew well that the fate of his predecessors, John the Baptist, the prophets of old, and he had no reason to expect to be exempted from it. Sometimes I think Christians picture Jesus with a a walkie-talkie God speaking in his head, filling him in on all the details. But that's to misunderstand the nature of Christ's true humanity. How did Jesus know all this would happen to him? Well, Jesus lived in perfect harmony to God's word and God's will. Jesus had studied Psalm 22 and had come to understand all that it signified for him as it spoke of him. He'd read Psalm 69. He'd read Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. And so in his humanity, Jesus understood that God had promised that his role would be one of great suffering, of rejection, of humiliation and shame. That his death would be an ignoble death at the hands of the religious leaders of the day, handed over to the Gentiles, the political power of the day. Every one of these predictions, whether it's the one in chapter 8 or chapter 9 or chapter 10, in their sometimes mere kind of presentation, or in chapter 10 it's more detailed presentation, lays out the plan perfectly because the Sanhedrin was obviously pushing for Jesus' death. Back in chapter 8, we learned that. The Gentiles, we we heard about their conspiring against Jesus in chapter 9. And the chief priests and the scribes and the Gentiles have all been foremount in this story. This isn't Mark projecting back to fill in his gospel account. This is Jesus in perfect, sinless humanity in full obedience and submission to His Father, moving towards the cross on purpose to fulfill God's plan, to accomplish His purpose. Three times Jesus has said, He'll be betrayed, He'll be killed, and He'll rise again. Showing the precedent of significance for all of Jesus' followers will be that central message that Jesus was fixed and focused on. Jesus came in humility and in suffering to sacrifice Himself for His people. And every part of their lives will be reoriented around it. Jesus has already said the marriage is part of this in chapter 10. 
That to be childlike and to come to Jesus in a simple way is the real heart and essence of what it means to be a disciple. That it will impact the things most dear to you, like family and possessions. That's what chapter 10 has been pressing for. But none of it will be without recompense. There will be repayment a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. These aren't retrojections. This is the heart of sacrifice and service by our Lord in His intentional obedience to His Father as He puts one foot in front of the other and heads towards Calvary. Which is why this prediction, like the prediction in chapter 8, Verse 31, that's followed by a discussion about who's the greatest. All the disciples were arguing. And Jesus sat down and he taught them if anyone would be first. Chapter, I'm sorry, this is the one in chapter 9. But if you go back to the one in chapter 8, verse 31 is his death and resurrection being foretold. And the first usurper is Peter, who says, this won't happen to you. And Jesus has to explain to Peter the way of discipleship in verse 34 of chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And then in chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus predicts his death again. And in chapter 9, that's when the disciples have their discussion about who's the greatest. And he tells them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he picks up a child and says, this is how you receive the kingdom. And now after Jesus' most detailed presentation of his destiny, involving the mockery and the spit, the betrayal, the death, the resurrection the powers involved, all detailed for his disciples, James and John, not understanding the need for humility and sacrifice, leave. Conspire together. They must have had this conversation elsewhere. Their brothers, they talked. They were part of the earlier discussion about greatness. They'd heard Peter get rebuked hard. But now the sons of Zebedee come to Jesus, James and John. And listen to what they say to him in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's tough. It's, it's really tough to read those words. You've got to be thinking like, how dare they, right? How stupid is that? How could they just hear Jesus say what's going to happen to him, having repeatedly been taught that, and then say such a childish and stupid question. I mean, it's a total blank check question, right? Who would ever go for a question like this? I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. Okay? No parent is signing up for that. I know this. You could ask me four times, any of my kids, from the least to the greatest, from the most obedient to the least obedient, And if they said, Dad, question. I would like you to let me do whatever it is I'm about to ask you to do. And I want you to say yes before I even ask you what it is. You think I would go for that? No, No, not a chance. (laughs) Not a chance. They wouldn't even ask that. But the disciples 
pietistic, scheming in this moment, knucklehead brothers. <laughs> they actually ask him. And the only way I can understand this question is what they're asking in their minds is something noble and godly and holy and something that Jesus is going to be impressed with. That's how I understand it. They're, They're not only seeking preeminence. They're mostly seeking preeminence. They're not only seeking prestige and power here. They're seeking preeminence and prestige and power for Jesus' sake, right? That's the only way that question could ever come out of their mouths because they're not his enemies, they're his friends. They know he's about to be in trouble and so they're going to ask a question that has some spirituality to it. I'm trying to make the question look better than it is, but it's hard. It's a terrible question, especially in context. And Jesus, so wise, so humble, with perfect sincerity and an ability to just do surgery on your question, asks them the perfect kind of clarification. What do you want me to do for you? At that point, it would have been perfect for James and John to just go, oh, you're right, you're right. Let's, you keep walking, we'll follow. <laughs> Jerusalem's that way, right, Lord? Yep, yeah, no, nothing else. That, that should have been enough to hear Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you. There's just a lot of you in that. Jesus just circling the you here on the boys. What do you guys want? It's all about you. You. You, you, you. And it just, whoo, right over their head. Because they go ahead and they ask anyway. Because in their minds it has to be godly of them. It has to be big of them to be willing, regardless of what Jesus just said, to take control, to be in charge. Obviously, Jesus is in charge, but we'll be two, three, part of the fiefdom over these other ten doofuses. They're angling, they're politicizing, they want to be in charge. They want to have their way. They want the inner circle. They want the most information. Uh, They would like a position. Maybe it comes with business cards. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, they have it all planned out. And it's supposed to sound godly, I'm sure. Grant us, grant us to sit. One at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I think they still have some heartburn, spiritual heartburn from chapter 9. Remember, it was Peter and James and John that were selected by the Lord to go up on the mountain with him, to be a part of the experience of transfiguration. I mean, they were amazed as Jesus was overshadowed by a glory cloud from heaven and God's voice came out and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They saw all that. And Peter tried to prolong the experience to keep them there, to kind of control it, and and that didn't go well because they were interrupted by God's voice. And as soon as they get back to the, back down to the mountain, it's real life. Disciples are donking their heads together trying to cast out demons. Failing. And so it's got to be related to that scene of glory that they're thinking. 
Like we want, we want to be there. We want to be in that moment. We want to partake in your glory, be at your right hand and your left. These are uh, symbolic ways of talking about your position, of being in a place of influence, of significance, second in command. We want to be on your right hand and your left hand. It's a request that's coming from a desire to show their support for Jesus, but also to make sure that they have a place of significance and preeminence. And Jesus is so patient with them. And when the other guys, the other 10, get a, get a taste of it, they're less patient in a second. <laughs> when the 10 heard it, verse 41, they began to be indignant at James and John. So if that's your posture in this moment, you're very disciple-like. What are you guys doing? But Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they give Jesus a one-word answer in Greek. We are able. Kind of a, yep. So bad. (laughs) Jesus, so gentle, so kind. He speaks of drinking of a cup. If you're going to sit at his right hand and his left, then you have to drink the same cup he drinks and be baptized with the baptism he's baptized. And, And so... They get it. He's using symbolic language, language that is very Old Testament, language that speaks of participation and union, of unity and involvement, of of close association. You hear the word baptized and you think, you know, dunked like Jesus was in the Jordan River. But the meaning behind baptism is identification. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says they were baptized with Moses in the Old Covenant. So to be baptized as a follower of Jesus means that you're with him. And Jesus says, well, whatever I participate in, you'll have to participate in. And whatever I drink or or undergo, you'll have to undergo. Drinking can be, in two things in the Bible, the cup is represented both joy and suffering. And so Jesus is just saying, well, whatever I undergo, you'll undergo. And, And whatever I am identified with, you'll have to be identified with. And he's asking them, are you able to suffer with me and experience the sufferings and joys of which I will drink from? And are you able to be identified with me all the way through everything that I will endure? And they say double thumbs up, yup. And so Jesus, still so patient, clarifies The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Whoa. This audacious request to ask Jesus to sign the the carte blanche. That's French for blank check. This desire to be in the elite inner circle to be important alongside with Jesus reveals that their interest may be in their own glory more than the glory of Jesus they feign concern about. Next week you'll see an awesome contrast to this because where James and John asked for significance, fame, importance, Bartimaeus just asks for faith. But that's the next paragraph. James and John want to sit in his glory. They think they can drink the cup. They think they can endure the baptism. And Jesus says they don't know what they're talking about. So much humble grace there. Psalm 16.5, a cup 
is something given by God. The famous Psalm 23 uses the word cup that way. It's to share in joy, prosperity, and sometimes in sorrow. Baptism is solidarity. It's identification. Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner, not because he was a sinner, because he wasn't a sinner, but he was baptized to identify with sinners. And so they're saying, yes, we'll, we'll take what you take. We'll do what you do. Can you do this? Can you drink the cup? Can you undergo the fate? Can you stay with me in solidarity, in self-sacrifice? And they think that they can. Remember, this is the guys that Jesus names in chapter 3, verse 19, the sons of thunder. Bonangeris. Sons of thunder. Loud, crashy, brutal, boisterous thunderheads. And so they, yeah, we could do it. Cup and baptism. I think they were kind of CrossFit. Peter, kind of, you know, slouchy. They were sort of CrossFit dudes. We'll drink a cup. We'll undergo a baptism. And Jesus concedes to them that they will. Which is another incredible, prophetic, powerful moment in Jesus' display of His perfect humanity his full divinity, because he knows that John will pay the ultimate price, be ostracized completely from all civilization, and will undergo visions of apocalyptic glory that will almost melt his mind in his elderly isolation at Patmos. And Jesus knows likewise that James will be killed for his faith in Acts chapter 12. And he'll undergo, he'll undergo death. It's just not what they thought they were asking for. It's definitely not the timing that they understood. And Jesus provides an important clarification in verse 40. To sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. Here again is the the humanity of Jesus on display in his submission to his Father. But there are things in the recesses of the Father's mind that are concealed from the humanity of Jesus. This is something that's up to God. And in a sense, Jesus doesn't have anyone on his left hand in glory on the throne of God because he's at God's right hand, which is a a spatial way of talking about uh, a non-physical God. But still, if that's the glory, which they definitely didn't have in mind, that space is occupied by the Father. But the glory that Jesus knows that he'll be baptized in And the cup that Jesus knows he'll drink, the cup and the baptism he just spoke of when he talked about the flogging and the mockery and being spit on and then crucified and killed, that cup and that baptism, he will be attended on his right and left, not by his disciples because they'll be largely scattered, but in his right hand will be a thief. And on his left hand will be another thief. And he'll be crucified and killed. And they'll be the ones who will spatially be in the hour of his greatest glory on his right and on his left. Something only God could prepare. And now the other disciples hear it. And they're bugged at James and John. Probably just because they didn't think to ask. Because Jesus just, you know, kind of consented, you you will participate and you will share in my glory. Just not right hand and left. And so the disciples are super bugged that James and John got to him and like wormed their way in. And 
And so Jesus gives them all a final word about how disciples need to be not concerned about their own glory and not concerned about their own position and preeminence and significance and ambition, but they need to be about sacrifice and service. If they're going to follow after Jesus on the way up to Jerusalem, if He's leading the way and these imperfect disciples in astonishment and fear are following Him, they need to be following Him in the things that He's doing, which is sacrifice and service. And so Jesus takes all the leadership books. He moves cheese and influences people. And I can't think of any other business books. And He puts them in the dumpster. And he says, you don't need those in my kingdom. Here's what you need. Verse 42, he called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is obvious. Everybody knows that. The boss is in charge. And those who want to be in charge try to get the top position. This is how the world works. It's how the world has always worked. The lesson of supreme importance isn't that because everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the Gentiles lead with a heavy hand. They rule. The kings and emperors of of Jesus' day were like that. They, They could say, you're dead and you're dead. They were in charge. They were significant. They were large. They were prominent. They were visible. They exercised authority. They had power over others. They subdued nations and enemies. They were despots. They were authoritarian leaders. Which is why it's so crazy for a pastor to be bossy. To think of himself in charge with this paragraph in the Bible. It's why it's so crazy for people to think that church politics are key for them feeling you know, significant on a Sunday morning. That's so the Gentile way. That's how Herod did it. Authoritarian, despotic, heavy-handed leaders. Everybody knows about those. But Jesus just flat rejects it with these words. Not so with you, verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Not so with you. Not so with you. Peter learns this lesson. And Peter probably told this story with a twinkle in his eye to Mark. You know when your friends do something stupid and you like to tell that story? That's Peter here. 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God. Peter's writing to other pastors saying, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He might exalt you. Not so with you, Jesus says. He rejects the model of preeminence and prestige, of being a glory hound, of being a despot, of heavy-handed, authoritarian, bossy church leaders. It's not this way among you. It shall never be this way among you. In Jesus' way. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In perfect accord with Jesus' words in chapter 9, verse 
35, if anyone would be first, you must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus prioritizes sacrifice and service as true marks of greatness. These are the positions and postures that correspond to Jesus' kingdoms. And the ethics of Jesus' kingdoms are not about power and control, but about service and sacrifice. And that's exactly what Jesus will model on the cross. It's what He modeled among His disciples. You want to be great? Be a slave. You want to be first? Be underneath everybody else. Greatness doesn't belong to the one who is great. But it belongs to the diakonos. That's the Greek word. It means the waiter. It's like the table servant. And the one who's the most preeminent in Jesus' kingdom grows out of Jesus' example and teaching that service and sacrifice are the tangible expressions of love. A slave of all. The first word is a servant. The second word is a slave, a doulos. Inferior even to a servant. A servant could get the day off. And so Jesus is saying servants and slaves, and slaves are even greater than servants. And so for these future leaders of His church, the inexhaustible service and sacrifice that Jesus will demonstrate for them, that Jesus will model, that Jesus is teaching, is not just a principle for church leaders to follow, church people to follow. It's actually Jesus' own pattern for His life. Because as He puts another foot in front of the other foot, in front of the other foot, up this road, inclining to Jerusalem, He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. The way of Jesus is the way of service and sacrifice. And it's crucial for every Christian to understand that if they're going to follow Jesus as faithful disciples, it is a followership of humility, of humble service, of lowliness, of others being more important than yourself, of living your life as Jesus did, a a ransom for many. He laid His life down and uses one of the the favorite kind of metaphors of early Christians for Jesus' atoning death, that He paid a price, a a ransom, a, a, a bail paid for prisoners or slaves to be released from bondage. And that initiative lied in what Jesus was doing to accomplish his, his greatest purposes as the one who came from God to suffer and die and be resurrected, Jesus perfectly and with all freedom and obedience lays his life down. The one who should have been worshipped and adored, the one who will be worshipped and adored when every knee bows, the one who is the object of angels' interest, of all of heaven's praises, the one who is by necessity God of very God and who is worthy of all glory and honor and power and praise, laid his life down for his friends, paying a ransom and modeling Suffering and death for many. Fully satisfying God's demands and justice and leaving us all a pattern to follow. Humble service, total sacrifice. That's what it means to be a disciple. And right after this happens, after giving us an example of the guy who couldn't make it, the rich young ruler, 
we get the example of this lowly, humble man who wants to follow Jesus. And his example, blind Bartimaeus, is one that is exactly what Jesus just demonstrated. And we'll look at him next time. Father, thank you for your word and for bringing it to bear on our hearts. We're grateful for Jesus' example in teaching that he was brought low so that he could lift us up from our sins, that he humbly served so that we could serve one another, that he laid his life down that we might lay our life down. God, it's, it's a huge and difficult calling to follow after your son, but we walk and follow Jesus imperfectly, but mindful of what he requires. Not exalting self, but lifting him up that he might get all the glory and praise and honor. Help us to be humble, sacrificial servants willing to lay our lives down as Jesus did. In his name, amen.